Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. Hey everybody, this is Kyle V, host of the Ozark Podcast. If you like the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast, we have a show for you. We sit down with local outdoorsmen of Arkansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma to talk all things hunting, fishing, conservation, history, and culture in the Ozark Mountains region. Just like the outdoorsmen who live here, we follow the seasons and interview regional experts to discuss the pursuits of hunting turkeys, bears, and whitetail, as well as the science behind their conservation. Join me and my co-host Kyle Plunkett every Wednesday and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You're listening to the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Now let's get to the episode. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. We're doing something a little bit different this time. Uh, we have a guy on who's a little bit newer of a hunter, and uh, we're going to be talking to him about some things that he's been struggling with, and we've got a special guest, Mr. Michael Perry here. Michael. Hello. How y'all doing? Glad to be here. Doing excellent. This man just brought me a, a vintage era with a bear razor head on it, which is pretty slick, so thank you for that. It's going to go in the studio. It's going to grace our studio from here on out. Awesome. You're very welcome. Um, all right, so Chris. Well, who, Mr. Else Chris is, who else is here, Oh, well, yeah, you, you too. Everyone knows about you too. All right. <laughs> the ginger and the dealer. The ginger and the dealer. The ginger and the dealer. The, the usual culprits. Um, Mr. Chris Lewis is our guest. Chris, how are you? Pretty good. How are you guys? Doing excellent. Uh, Chris is a very patient man. Uh, we're exactly one hour late starting this thing. We've been uh, 
kind of goofing around. It's not been good. Um, Jacob, how are you? I wouldn't say goofing around. Just had a lot of technical issues uh, for the last hour and a half, but uh, doing well. Chris, I'm excited about this podcast uh, and kind of breaking down um, just a lot of things deer hunting for you. And before we jump into it, though, because I got something I want to lead into it, we got Michael Pike. What's up, guys? What's going on, Diller? What is up? The killer Diller. What the is Diller. that? Listen, killer you, you, know, you know what's fun about this conversation? We have Mr. Perry, who named Michael the that Diller. Right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's, He's it's, the one that coined the Diller. The or Diller. The, they'll turn over every leaf for a deer Diller. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You've awesome. been all over Alabama. I reckon them leave yeah. it. Yeah, awesome. yeah. So, Chris, let's kind of dive into I want to talk a little bit about your hunting background because – you are just you're a new bow hunter but you've hunted before especially as a kid kind of growing up talk a little bit about your hunting experience and also your fishing experience because it's going to play a huge factor in this conversation we're going to have today first of all thanks for having me on guys i'm a big fan of your show i really appreciate what you guys put out there it's great that you guys tailor towards new hunters and really helps me out so thanks for having me on um as far as um hunting wise uh i grew up in texas and uh you know at maybe uh, maybe like eight years old or so my dad started taking me out and uh, we had a nice lease that was you know a good amount of acreage and we had uh, quite a few box blinds around there and just pretty much hunted over corn and and feeders and um, got some nice bucks uh, growing up you know killed my first deer killed my first buck a couple hogs nothing crazy and then kind of um, grew out of it a little bit uh, and fishing was a big part of um, growing up for me as well um, but kind of faded out in my teens and then uh Ended up joining the military, and uh, fishing was a huge passion of mine when I moved to Florida. The military brought me to Florida, and I just got addicted to fishing and um, fished hard for about 15 years. Um, Ended up in South Florida and fished there hard, fly fishing, saltwater fly fishing, spear fishing, that kind of stuff, um, for about 10 years. And then uh, took a transfer for my job and ended up in South Carolina. Well, to kind of kick us off... um Chris, when we had a conversation last week, we were talking about how you took such a long leave of absence, you could say, from hunting, and you were chasing, you know, saltwater fishing, or saltwater fish, and you were really kind of dove down to this, especially like fly fishing, and the conversation that we had was, when you get back into deer hunting, uh, you know, over, like, really, it was last year, last year was your first bow season back at it, um, which is kind of exciting, but you mentioned to me how the fly fishing aspect, and kind of, you know, hunting for the tarpon, the the bonefish, the snook, whatever you're fishing for, was very similar approach as in, you know, what you were trying to accomplish as deer hunting. Can you talk a little bit about the correlation and the relationship between fishing for you and hunting whitetails and how you see that there's a, there's a relationship there that maybe some people wouldn't think about? Um, sure. Yeah. Um, saltwater fly fishing is not like a huge sport, but um, it's actually very similar to hunting because you're basically just hunting on the water for a fish it's mostly sight fishing almost exclusively sight fishing to find a target that's you know very wary of you and very hard to convince to eat feathers so um, the learning curve when it comes to uh, fly casting is very similar to archery you know what I mean and, and learning how to shoot your bow so mastering that craft of fly fishing so that you can perform when you find your trophy target which uh, in the Keys in South Florida where I was was bonefish, permit, tarpon, redfish, snook, uh, just hunting hours and hours on the water for that one opportunity and then having to execute that with your fly to get them to eat it. Um, very, uh, very difficult. It was a tough, tough learning curve. It took me about five years until I started having a lot of success. Uh, and, and just in my first year of bow hunting, it's, it's so similar. I mean, it's so similar. A lot of the things translate like, you know, just 
having to grind and then finding that special scenario where you know it's going to happen and feeling it and then just, you know, having to capitalize and messing up a lot until you get good. Very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I'll do, I'll do some fly fishing too, and you got to be aware of your surroundings. There's certain specific things you just got to do for it to work out, and it's that's very interesting. So. I'd be that guy that'd be catching stuff like in, up in the tree somewhere. So. <laughs> yeah, that happens a lot. Yeah. You know, and just like deer uh, using cover, fish use cover too. So you're constantly, you know, casting the mangroves and stuff like that, and it's it's the same type of thing. Yeah, catching a lot of trees. So. So, Chris, the kind of transition from that kind of background getting to, you know, fly fishing to, you know, whitetail hunting. Last year was your first bow season, and you and me talked about this. And for your first bow season, especially hunting public land, you had quite a bit of success. Can you briefly kind of highlight your last season uh, when it came to the successes you had? And then we're going to kind of discuss a little bit about, you know, what did you learn within this last year, really kind of diving into it, and then also what questions you have that are still kind of left unanswered. Because I know you've been listening to a lot of the podcasts, taking in a lot of different media outlets to try to learn as much as you can. But let's kind of hit on last year and the success that you did have. Okay. Um, yeah, so um, last year I moved to um, South Carolina basically at the start of COVID and uh, decided I was going to try my luck at turkey season. And um, I have a few friends who definitely steered me in the right direction. And uh, I was that super lucky hunter that went out there opening morning and killed a gobbler on my very first turkey hunt in the first 20 minutes. <laughs> wow. And I haven't killed one here since. So, um, you know, uh, that was – interesting um I, I grinded that whole first april and and was, i had some close calls but just wasn't experienced enough to get it done and then um did some scouting in the summer and then uh, i killed a spike on opening day um which i was fired up about and uh, i was two miles deep and had to learn the hard way about dragging a deer out two miles deep <laughs> not an easy task and um and then i um i shot a small buck um, and didn't recover it, which was a tough, tough learning process. And then about mid-October, I was able to get my target buck, which was a, um, a pretty decent eight point. I was, I was jacked up. I was fired up about getting him. And I mean, that was like the thing that like really cemented it for me that this is what I want to be doing. And like, I want to, I'm obsessed. And, um, and then I shot a doe with a rifle. So that was my first hunting season. So your first season, you got a target buck with a bow. That's uh, I'm going it was up. it I'm was a little bit of luck now. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. Oh my, my! Some of my some of my close buddies call me the horseshoe. So wow. I mean, if that gives you any idea, I mean, that's, I was very lucky. That's, that's I'm, awesome. I'm pretty curious about that. So uh, jumping in like your first year back to hunting, I mean, you had a lot of success for a first year <laughs> hunter. So I mean, can you walk us through what your thought process was last year that uh, kind of led you specifically, I guess, that target buck? Um, well, um, you know, a couple of my buddies are, are diehard killers and, uh, I, I lean on them heavily and then, uh, you know, you guys podcast, um, YouTube, just obsessing over, um, all the content I could consume and, uh, and just going out there and basically faking it till I made it, you know what I mean? Just walking <laughs> around and, uh, I was out there in the middle of August and I bumped a buck and. I saw antlers and I was like, holy cow. So I put a, a trail cam up and ended up getting one picture of them before the season. And then I just kind of, uh, I bounced around, but I stuck to that area really hard trying to figure out how to get that, that buck. And, um, once, um, 
once they started laying down some sign, I started, you know, kind of keying in that, that that was probably this buck. And uh, and then once the acorn started dropping, I was able to capitalize on that and get him. It was, it was luck. I mean, looking back now, a lot of it made sense looking at the map and where I was sitting. But it was like the sign that brought me there. It wasn't that I knew what I was doing. I just happened to be sitting in the right spot, you know. That, that's what I was going to ask. Do you feel like that was a beginner's luck or or was it done with a purpose? I mean, I think it was definitely a combination of luck and persistence and just my experience with fly fishing, knowing that you got to just keep grinding until you learn, you know what I mean, and get that experience under your belt. But um, definitely a lot of luck. Right. Well, you vis- you visually found him and basically in this core area and concentrated on that. And that, that worked out. That's good. You've done a real good job. So, well, kind of moving forward with it then, uh, what are some things that you feel like, I mean, you're still struggling with that, I'm, I don't know, maybe you're unsure of in the deer woods. I mean, are you, are you, let me ask you this, actually, are you kind of uh, apprehensive about taking that success and uh, basically being consistent with it? Like, do you feel like you're going to be able to continue uh, well, yeah, I'm terrified. If you ask me how my turkey season went this year, um, <laughs> I know how lucky I was. Um, yeah, and just, you know, finding bucks has been a struggle for me. Uh, I went through a, a month of, of the season grinding last year where I didn't see any bucks. And um, and it's, um, yeah, it's a concern. Uh, scouting has been really tough, you know what I mean? I, that's one of the big questions I have is just – uh, the main way that I find bucks is just by jumping them and, and just covering ground. And I don't know if that's the most effective way to do it, but um, that's kind of how I do it. I think that's a really good way to be honest. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you put eyes on a buck, I mean, yeah, that's awesome. Because a lot of times you don't know if they're there or not. Um, yeah, I mean, you can walk right past them and not even know. But definitely, if, you, if you're jumping them, I mean, that's good in my opinion. I don't know what y'all think, but I like that. Well, you got to find a buck, and if you, well, however you find him, that's, I mean, that's it. If you find him by jumping him, or if you find him by trail camera, or by a big track, once you find him, I mean, that's it. Because they're not going, you know, a lot of people think they might leave their area, but he's not going to leave the area. You, you know where he's at now, mm-hmm. then you can use the maps or, or postseason scouting or whatever, and figure out where he's at, and then, then zone in on him like you did. So you're, you've got a, a very good mindset on what you're doing, and that, that, that's working. So you can just expand it a little bit. And there ain't no telling what you're going to do if you're already to this point in your first year. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know about that. But, I mean, uh, I'd say I probably only found maybe five bucks since I started hunting. And I've I've put in a lot of time looking for them. So, well, Well, that's five bucks. I mean, (laughs) there's nothing wrong with that. So, Chris, let me ask you this. Um, The bucks that you did bump and, and, like, you were able to kind of jump them up from bed or whatever or just ran into them, was there anything that you noticed last year, like a specific kind of habitat they were in, something? Like, was there anything that was, like, a correlation with all those bucks that they were always by something? Or was there anything in relations that you could now think back at, like, hey, he was probably here for whatever reason? I mean, did you, did you see any kind of pattern from where you were jumping deer, or was it just completely at random? I mean, I like to say there was some pattern to it, but I mean, honestly, I'm hunting the middle of the national forest. It just goes miles and miles and miles. And and a lot of areas that I uh, digitally scout don't turn out to be anything. You know what I mean? And I I just keep walking and walking and and looking. I mean, a lot of times I have uh, bumped them off, you know, the edges of the ridges. You know what I mean? Like you guys talked the secondary points. Uh, And that was one of my questions. Lately, you guys have been focusing a lot on the bedding. And, uh, and I, I don't find anything in the bottoms. I don't find anything in the thickets. I mean, I have a hard time finding buck beds. I found a few of them uh, in turkey season, and I go back, and they don't 
they don't look the same way they did in the spring. And uh, no, I think it was just dumb luck. Um, I found uh, one mature buck that kind of lives in the, uh, the crow's foot that Andrew always talks about. And uh, I can't even get in there. I don't even, I don't have a clue how to kill that deer. I, I don't believe that I'll ever kill that deer just based off of where he's at. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I got a lot to learn. I'm trying. Michael, you want to talk about betting a little bit? You're kind of the, the yeah. betting guy here. Um so the first thing I do when I when I try to find bedding is I break down the basically the topography. So first thing I do is bring up, you know, a topographical map and I'll look for where those lines start stacking up if you are in hill country. Um that's the first thing I do. And as long as there's a decent amount of cover uh close to where those lines stack up, you'll usually find bedding uh located on those. Now what I don't know about is here recently we've really when we've gotten into these gps studies they're bedding in a lot more places than i have typically found i've always found them on those secondary points or somewhere along the ridge along that military crest and as long as there's good cover uh within that area then you'll usually find beds and how i usually go about finding those like once i put boots on the ground is so i start walking where that where that drop really starts you know, where it starts dropping off to go to the bottom um, and gets a little bit more steep. Uh, I will walk that, you know, a transition or look for blowdowns or look for some kind of thick area. Uh, usually there's a main trail that wraps around that military crest, and it's usually really worn in. So if you find a really worn in trail about that, you know, a third of the way down from the top, uh, I would follow that around. And if you see any kind of sign or like a branch, like, where the trail branches off and maybe goes up in elevation, uh, that's what, what trail I'll usually take. So if I see that, I'll usually walk that trail up. And usually if you can follow that trail up, maybe about 20 or 30 yards, and then you just see it kind of like almost disappear, that's a, a good indication that that's where you need to be starting your, you know, where you're looking at. So you're looking from that point on, you're looking for the good cover. So if you see a blowdown up there or if you see some kind of little, you know, thick area that might could hold a deer, I would start my search there. And then all you're doing is looking for what looks to be like maybe flattened out leaves. Maybe they look lighter in color uh, if you're in pines. Um, it can be a little bit more difficult in pines, in my opinion. Um, just because they don't, they don't, they don't stand out as much. Um, but you should see, especially if it's a really worn in bed, uh, a lot of times there will be uh, a little bit, you know, I guess more dirt visible. So like if you see some leaves and they're matted down or you see some pine straw and they're matted down, um, it, it usually doesn't take much of pulling that back or raking that back. It's usually a very thin layer. Uh, right there where the bed is um so that's what i usually do um i don't know about y'all the bucks always try to have some kind of advantage and it not it might not always be always you know a third of the top or or you know like a lot of people say it could be lower but where they got some kind of advantage where they got a hard background to the back and then where they can see visually a pretty good range in front of them so it could be over halfway down i found a couple of them that was say 50 foot above a creek and there's still 300 foot or more of elevation above them so it just depends on what they like and where they feel secure at it's not always standard in one you know specific place one thing i'll mention is uh the deer don't like to bed on something that's a little bit steeper so if you've got a flat spot i would definitely look for the flat spots uh whether that be you know 
the dirt or the the landscape itself is flatter right there or uh, if it's really steep terrain sometimes these deer will bed say there's a really big tree uh, that's coming up out of the ground uh, right above that tree will be a flattened out area um, and a lot of these deer will bed right up against the tree where it's a little bit flatter because the dirt is like almost pushed up against the base of the tree on the uphill side of the tree right on the uphill side and they'll bed right there too so another thing that i thought of when you just mentioned that example was uh benches benches are great places for these benches. deer to bed because old, old logging roads that were i'm talking about logging roads that were cut 40 50 years ago that right. you don't hardly even see them on a map yeah laurel bushes or some kind of thick coverage grow up on they love them i don't care if they're 15 foot above a creek or some kind of elevation they just love them too yeah down here in alabama i don't know if it's the same way up there but i assume it probably is to some extent but a lot of the logging occurs at the top and once they get to the military crest that's where they usually stop their logging because it gets too steep you know it's more hassle than it's worth and so that creates a really good transition along some of these hillsides and these deer like to bed right on the edge of those um Sometimes it's, you know, right on the edge, but sometimes it's, you know, 20 or 30 yards up into the thicket. Um, it just depends. You just have to, I, I usually zigzag back and forth, probably about 50 yards wide. And once I start picking up the beds, if you find one bed at one elevation, you can pretty much in that area, you can go to any certain, any other uh, hillside. And at that elevation, you can typically find beds as long as there's good cover. Um, it's just something about the elevation because most of these military crests and stuff occur at the same elevation anyways. And so if you find one bed at, you know, 800 foot, you can look for that whole area and at 800 foot, that's a good area that you could go to, to start searching for these beds. So Chris, let me ask, um, can you describe the habitat of the areas that you're hunting, especially in South Carolina? You know, hill country, is it flat? Is it hardwoods? Is it mostly pines? Is there a lot of logging? Is there no logging? Can you, like, describe the area to us a little bit? It's, it's all of those. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, um, it's river bottom and hill hill country mostly that I'm hunting, pines and hardwoods, uh, a lot of ridge tops. Um, you know, you guys, I just listened to your two-and-a-half-hour listener Q and a today, which answered basically every question on my list, but, um, wow. talking about the bedding, uh, I had a question for you guys, a legitimate question. Um, so let's say a week ago I was doing some scouting and I was walking in the bottom and, and I bumped uh, a pair of bucks in that same scenario you guys described last week where they have the visual advantage, 180 degrees and the wind coming over their back. I mean, it was picture perfect. I kind of like had an idea in my mind where they were. I tried to really focus where they were and I went and studied that area that I jumped them from. And now, now I have it on the map and I, and it's, it's super deep in. And, uh, my question is if, if, if my season opens September 15th and the acorns don't really start dropping good till mid October, you know, like how do, how do I, how do I target that buck when he is up on that ridge top? Uh, most of the times I'm hunting, you know, in the ridges or the saddles and, and late evening I've been busted so many times from the dropping thermals. Like how do, how do you approach that buck to hunt that buck early season? Now, you say you began busted by dropping thermals because you were hunting where, in the bottoms or on the top? Uh, basically just off the ridge tops, you know, kind of uh, in at the top of draws and, like, just, you know, where I would see the deer 
and and maybe looking back now that wasn't a good idea uh yeah i know you talked about it early on the podcast today about being more towards the bottom because your thermals would drop in the bottom but like how do i know where that deer is going to go when i can't focus on any of their food if you can find the track that's the biggest thing but the like on the hunting in the evening and yeah you got to be toward the bottoms in the hill country for me for best success because of the thermals it's because if they come off anywhere else and get below you when you're busted, so I try to stay tight where I'm pretty sure they're coming down, then hunt that part in the bottom in the evening. So in the mornings, I stay on the tops or the upper thirds more likely. So This podcast is supported by Mark's Outdoors. If you're from around Birmingham, you know of a, a staple in the hunting community here, and that would be Mark's Outdoors. They've been in business in the same location for over 40 years, family-owned and operated, and they have a reputation for being one of the best bow shops in the southeast. As we inch closer and closer to deer season, if you haven't already, it's time to dust off that bow and make sure that she's ready to roll for this hunting season. Go stop by Mark's Outdoors and check out their archery counter with Mark and Robbie, two guys I've known for years, excellent bow techs. They've worked on my bow since I started bow hunting. They got all the knowledge and accessories that you need to get ready to rock for this bow season. While you're in there, also make sure you check out their gun counter. They got a ton of nice rifles for everything from AR platforms to nice deer rifles and a bunch of nice shotguns as well. They also have one of the best knife selections in Alabama. I mean, really nice stuff. All kinds of custom knives in there. And their ammo selection is just unbeatable as well. We're thrilled to have Marks Outdoors on board, and we thank them for supporting the podcast. Now we're going to ask you guys to go support them. Silence your setup and shave weight with the Hasmore Silent Seat. The Hasmore Silent Seat is a hammock style seat designed to replace your climber's bulky factory seat. We all know how important it is to stay silent when you're moving in on that weary old buck in bow season. These seats are great for bow hunters. Not only do they make climbing quieter and easier, but the seat silently slides back when you stand to shoot. These are extremely comfortable and you will not miss your loud and bulky factory seat. Check out the link in the description or go to hasmore.net and use the code SO15 for 15% off. Yeah, what I would focus on is like, where's your best cover to get to that bottom? Uh, how are they going to travel? What do you think is the most secure way that they can get to that bottom without being detected? Is it going to be going through, you know, down the draw or is it is there some thick cover that's going along the spine of the ridge it it really just depends on the situation so i'd look for like some somewhere you know they could get safely from one point to another and you know describing since you don't have you know a, a defined food source necessarily that like they could go any direction but um you're just going to have to just try all of the different areas that you think that they you know could possibly go i mean they could hop back over the ridge and go the opposite direction but i mean that's just it, you're just going to have to you know narrow it down by just by trying really um there's no way if you don't know what they're feeding on necessarily at that time of the year so you don't have like ag or anything like that up there i'm assuming it's just a bunch of woods man. yeah yeah uh, well generally early season like that you um, the most the best success i've had in the evening is, is finding where they're coming down a steep face and it's where it don't take them but a few seconds to get to the bottom because that's what that's their end game is to get to that bottom then they browse around and and make a big john at night so is that's my best success find a steeper place that you're suspected they're coming from out of bed and and, and hang tight to that you, if you got some small drainages little creeks that we can just if you just find the track find his track crossing then you can start there so in those areas do you have like like he was saying do you have like a creek at the bottom down there um do you 
Yeah, almost almost every yep. drainage has a good bit of water. In so them, and, uh, and there are some crossings. So what I might would do is is look at that area and then find an area. So have you heard us talk about the thermal hubs? Yeah. So find where those all of those drainages kind of meet into one area, and you'd be more likely if you set up there, even if he wasn't bedded in one location, if he was bedded on one of those other points, then what he can do is he can drop down to that one central location, and you know, if you have three or four different drainages that, you know, drop into one main area, that would be the best place to set up uh, because, you know, you don't know necessarily which bedding location he's bedded in. So he could drop off of any one of those, but they all meet up at the same area. So those are areas that I like to focus on, especially uh, in the evenings, because if you can get away from just slightly away from where those drainages meet in right there, your thermals are going to be pulling away from those drainages just because all of the water, what it does over time is it cuts into those hillsides and all of that water drains away from the, where, where it meets in right there. They all funnel in and meet up and then go away from that area. So if you can set up down there in those areas, then you possibly, you know, you have a better chance to statistically for, you know, a deer to be dropping off of any one of those points and coming to that one central location. So uh, I'll say, I'll interject right here uh, and say that I actually uh, on Saturday scouted a spot that sounds pretty similar to this. Uh, there's like a bunch of good bedding points around a, a big hub. Really, it's like a giant SMZ, a big creek bottom that kind of runs up. And uh, there's there's SMZs that run it all over the all over the place. There's points that run it all over the place. There's bottoms. Like there's so much good bedding that I didn't even try to look for beds. I'm like, I'm just gonna go and walk in here, and I'm gonna see if I see tracks. I'm gonna see if I see rubs from past years, and see what's in there. And I get into the spot, and uh, there there are tracks, there are rubs. I found some big tracks in the creek. So the first thing I did was I walked the creek straight up in there, which is something you told me to do, and uh, and found big tracks crossing that creek. And so then I, I walked the perimeter of that hub. So I went up in all the bottoms and came back down and up the next one, back down, up the next one, back down. And uh, what I found was the concentration of buck sign was at the south side of that hub, and there's like a little knob that kind of – drops off into it on the south side or the downstream side I should say so everything runs together and comes together and then it keeps going downstream on the downstream side of it on the little hill above it there's a big huge scrape there's a bunch of beds all around that scrape there's a bunch of rubs around it and then there was a faint trail coming off of it and dropping down at the downstream the very downstream side of that thermal hub and then it crosses the creek and that's where those big tracks were so it's almost like He's uh he's coming out on the downstream side of that thermal hub. I don't know if this is what he's doing. I I hope think this is what he's doing. Uh, he's coming out probably in the evening, and crossing the downstream side so he can scent check the whole thing. So uh my plan right now is to go in there and I'm gonna hunt that trail uh, early season where he if he wants to go up into the thermal hub he can come down there and Jay hook up into it if he's gonna use thermals to his advantage. Um, or if he's going to go downstream, you know, that seems like the same trail that he might use. And, and that point was like noticeably the one that had the most buck sign on it from previous years. So I haven't ran any cameras there yet. Um, I'm assuming there's bucks in there cause there's been bucks there in the past, obviously. So I'm just, I'm going to guess there's probably one I want to shoot in there just based on where it's at. But getting back to what you said earlier, are, did you 
say that you jumped some deer out of a, a hub or a crow's foot and they're bedded in the bottom or they were feeding down there? No, they were they were bedded on the military crest. I was walking the bottom, kind of similar to what you're talking about, but it was just, I was just walking actually to another point and I got sidetracked. So I had a point on my map that I wanted to go to and I just got sidetracked and started walking the bottom. And then I saw the bucks jump from the typical scenario of bedding. And then I'm, I'm looking at them on the map where they're bedded and trying to figure out how to hunt those. And I know you guys have been talking a lot about hunting in the bottoms and hunting the creek crossings. Uh, I just never had any luck there before, but it's probably because I just didn't understand thermals enough or, you know, I don't know what it would be. One, one thing I'll say is uh, even though they're bedded right there right now, I don't know if I would be, I don't know if I would really count on them bedding there once season comes in. I know it's like, probably a month and a half or so uh, for you until season comes in there. Uh, just because they're using those beds now doesn't mean they'll use them then. And kind of like Michael was saying a minute ago, uh, especially based on the GPS stuff that we've looked at, I mean, there he probably has at least six beds that he's using, if not more, uh, up to 12, maybe even 15 or so, depending on what, uh, like that's what Bill said. So, I mean, really when you think of it that way, there's like a one in six chance that he's actually in that bed. If you're, you know, assuming the lowest case scenario of beds, like let's say he only uses six, what's well, a one in six chance that he's laying there where he's going to see you walk in? I will go hunt it anyways, and I'd be curious yep. to hear the the Michaels uh, intake on this. Yeah, the only thing that I would add is uh, once you go into the season. So you, where you said it, I can't remember. Did you say this was in August or is this right now? Oh, uh, that was a week ago. Okay, so what? When do do you know when your deer usually break up? Like when they break up out of their bachelor groups? Y'all talk about these bachelor groups. I ain't never seen no bachelor group. <laughs> <laughs> I've been looking, man. I've been looking. So, I haven't seen a bachelor group. I've seen a pair. Uh, I've seen a couple pairs, but I have not seen okay. bachelor groups. Um, okay. So I don't I don't really know. Well, that's, that's, well, that's, that's a that, bachelor group around here. A lot yeah. of times they run in just twos. I right. Mean, that's, that's nothing and, out of the ordinary. So. And I would say that's actually a good thing because – out of the ones that we've seen, it if there's more than just a couple, usually there are more smaller bucks in those groups. Uh, if there's a, it it just seems like the more mature deer, they like they'll get in couples. Um, I've noticed that over the years. Um, I'll I'll find like two of them together, uh, versus like a whole bunch of smaller ones. Uh, but the only thing that I would suggest is, um, you know, depending on when does your season start. Uh, September 15th. Okay. That's, wow. that's still pretty early. Um, it's a whole, full month earlier than us. Um, Man, I might need to go to South Carolina this September. Yeah. <laughs> Get uh, an early start. Our dove opener. Yeah. What about your rut? About when does your rut start? Um, they say uh, Halloween through the first week is what I hear. Um, based on what I saw, uh, I only saw it running. I only saw them running one day, <laughs> but it was the best hunt that I had. Uh, last year but everything was just out of range because of those fallen thermals well let, let me do this um chris do you have any other questions because i want to hit some more topics as well with you do you have any other any other questions in regards to like betting or anything like that um if so we'll cover them if not we can kind of go maybe to, so some other questions you may have over some different topics um yeah um let's see i have a few questions listed here that uh wasn't talked about um well, you always talk about the entrances and the exits and how important that is. And I'm, I want to know why you think the exits are so important. Ooh, ooh. Ooh. I, so I, hold on. Let me give my opinion first, <laughs> and then I'll let y'all give y'all's. 
It's not as important to me because I don't usually hunt the same spots over and over again. Um, so I'll let y'all okay. go into that. <laughs> well, I'll just, I'm going to take myself out of this discussion because Jacob made fun of me a couple podcasts ago and I can't defend myself because it's true. We're like, but when I get down out of the tree, I'm like clanking everything together. I'm like, I'm crashing through the brush. I'm like getting out of there. I'm like, I know I should be quiet and stuff, but uh, it's like, I just don't do it. I'm so bad about it. So, so this is, and Miss Perry, I want to talk to you as well. Cause I know you hunt a lot of spots multiple days in a row. So that's probably gonna be important, especially exit routes, getting in, you know, real getting out quiet. But my thought is if it's an area, I think there's a lot of potential in. Okay. Exit route is huge. Or just like being quiet, like understanding that like when you're getting down, like say, say you're hunting a spot, it's hill country and you walk in cause your best path to your spot is coming from down low. You're, you're walking a Creek drainage on the way in. Well, if you walk that creek drainage on the way out, there's a very high chance you're gonna be blowing some deer out. Like just the this base off the area, base off the time of the year, especially during bow season, they're gonna be down there. You're gonna blow some deer out of there. Now, whether or not it makes a huge deal to them, where that big buck just doesn't want to come down to that bottom till way after dark, I don't know. I, I didn't ask them, and we might find that out with some of the GPS studies. But my yeah. my thing is noise is a huge factor. And when you get out, making sure that you have a way that you can get out fairly quietly is a huge factor as well. As in, like, yeah, but why is it important? That's what he asked. Well, so the, the reason why I find it Jacob's important, rambling because oh, he's trying to think of what to say. No, next. no, 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 no. no. Listen, so I, I mean, part of what you guys say is that at nighttime they go on their big loop around their core area, right? I mean, don't they survey the area after it gets dark? Yeah. So uh, to me, a lot of it's based off more the noise factor than anything. Um, and the reason why I'm saying this is it's it's an area that I'm potentially want to come back to because it, it's good. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a spot coming during bow season. I have some close run-ins with some does, but I know there's some bucks in the area. I'm going to try everything in my power to get out of there quietly so I can potentially come back in here and, and hunt again. I just don't want to hit any like metal hitting together. And also on the way out, I'm trying to figure out it's dark now. Where are these deer probably going to be at, and how can I get out without blowing them out? Uh, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that also comes the factor that, you know, it, it's even better if you can like do like what Mr. Perry talks about is like cut tracks on these, tr- on these Creek crossings and stuff and know potentially where is this buck kind of coming through and knowing maybe it's not walk that direction on the way out. Okay. Um, but again, like Michael says, you know, Michael could care less because he's probably not coming back to hunt that spot again. So it, it comes down to your approach. It comes down to like, are you just going to be always hunting new spots or are you going to find mm-hmm. an area that you really are going to learn and then you're going to hunt it really smart so you can hunt these areas multiple times in a row. And the thing is, you might not hunt the same tree again. And I re- I've never, ever, I don't think I've, I'm trying to think, other than one spot in Tennessee, rarely ever hunt the same tree more than twice in a season. Okay? But when I mean the spot, I might be 40, 50 yards from there or 60 yards from there, but I'm going to come back and hunt there within a few days. So it's like everything I can do to be quiet on the way out is a, is a huge factor for me so I can come back in there and hopefully get a pretty good hunt. But You can't see me on camera, uh, but um, I'm dying out laughing because Mr. Perry, <laughs> he's going to have to say he's gonna have something to say about this one because uh, he likes to hunt the same spot. So Yeah, yeah. well, this is, this is a great yeah, question. I'm going to break his heart about the noise. Now, uh, I will it. say this. Because I will the say, noise is the last thing you worry about. Yeah, so I will say this, though. Unless it's metal. In the rut, you can get away with a whole lot more. Um, I've hunted out of the same tree probably 10 times in a row. If you've got a good area where does are coming through uh, during the rut, you can get away with a whole lot more because those those deer, they just do not care. Um, I killed two deer. My dad killed a deer, and his buddy killed a deer all out of the same tree within like a two-week span. 
Uh, this was on the edge of a cutover. We were this at this time. This was probably like eight years ago. Uh, we were in a, a hunting club, and um, it just produced. I mean, the deer were coming through there, and there was no reason to not keep hunting it. A lot of people have that, you know, kind of opinion like, oh, you don't need to keep hunting this tree. If it's during the rut and the deer are in there, then there is no reason that you should not keep hunting that tree uh, because those deer will keep showing up. As Now, I will say this. I may have had a ton of deer the first time I went in to hunt that, and each time that we hunted it, you saw less and less deer, especially like when you're going out into the cutover and actually pulling deer out that you killed. Um, <laughs> There's less deer yeah. there to be seen. Yeah, <laughs> we actually killed. So, right. so I think my but I think my dad's buddy killed a deer too. But I'd killed two out of there for sure. He, my dad killed one, and I think the other guy had either killed one or maybe shot at one. But anyways, that's that's how many deer were killed out of that one specific tree. Um, just on the edge of that cutter because we weren't going out there in there and they were cutting up through the middle and going over a saddle. So you didn't have to go out in there unless you actually killed a deer, which we did go out there quite a few times and with the four wheeler, mind you, cause this was in a hunting club. This is like eight years ago. So I will say that, you know, you can get what you can get away with a lot more than you would think, especially if it's during the rut. But I know you have a lot more to say about this because you well, have the access. Spots. Let's go back to the access. Is what he's wanting to know. Yeah. I use the same entrance and the same exit all the time. And the main reason is when I'm going in, when I pick a place I'm going to hunt to access it or exit, I'm always going to go in where I do not cross any other deer trails or any type of habitat where I think they're going to be just hanging at. Now they might walk through every now and then, but so I'm. But I'm making sure I can get through there. In and out without leaving very minimum sense. So I wear some kind of gloves. You know, you got the rubber boots, whatever. And if I have to take a little clippers and clip trails to get to where I'm at, that's fine. So I'm always in and out the same way because I do not want to send up the whole area by walking and entering through different ways. So if I'm going to hunt a bottom, I'm coming in off a top and pretty much straight down. I might walk a creek for a little bit, but it's I'm not walking it for a mile or whatever. So. And hunting the top. So if you're hunting the bottom, you enter in from the top. Yes. And if you're hunting the top, you enter in from the bottom, typically. Well, down on top is a whole different thing. But I'm entering from the top. I'm hunting the up the upper, the upper third of the you know, or, or watching the shells, whatever. I'm still coming in from the top. Okay. Because more likely in the mornings, if you try to access a a, a ridge in the mornings to hunt, you're driving through the bottom and it's still dark. There's yeah. a good chance you're yep. still in the bottom. Exactly. So. You, you got to think of where where are the deer at at this point in time. Um, so if you're going in in the morning, you know that they're probably feeding. Well, until we got this GPS data, <laughs> this, this GPS data is totally, totally messed up. Just get rid of it, guys. Well, you got to remember the GPS data. You know, that's I'll one thing I, I've listened story. to the GPS data, and you got to remember that the deer that they got for this GPS data is the easiest deer that they could shoot. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Could, they could train. So that's, that's a that's good a very, point. That's, that's a, what I told oh, him wow. when he mentioned right. that. That's a very oh, yeah, limited man. sample, so I, you just you can take it yeah. with a grain of salt. I mean, yeah, they shot them on a corn pile. Yeah, you know, corn right. pile. So road, those were the ones deer. that were going to die anyway. Right, yeah. Yep. To, yep. So yeah, that and that's one thing. <laughs> so when Miss Perry first mentioned that to me, actually, I was like, "Holy cow! I did not think of that." And it, it's amazing because you think uh, these people that are going in to actually trap these things where are they going well they're going right off the road where they have easiest access to all of this stuff because they're not right, they got a hunters. 60 gallon Moultrie they're, feeder yeah <laughs> they're not going two miles deep you know they're not right. going a mile deep way right. back in the thicket somewhere 
you know. Exactly so, right. You so, guys done duped everybody. Everybody's going to be hunting next to the road. That's what I told him. I said, I said, thank God y'all done that because I could get some pressure <laughs> off of the ground. So, <laughs> so, oh, boy. That's, that's cool, the that's master cool plan. Help, that's going to help me yeah. a lot this season. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a quick question about the GPS data I never heard. Did um, Just from what you saw so far, did you notice that when a, a deer got up from his bed in the evening that his first move was usually to go down low? Did you notice that at all? Uh, for, it was mixed. So, mm, it was no, mixed. No, 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 no. So uh, really the, I've only accurate what I would consider accurately looked at that exact thing on one deer so far, and the answer is no on him. But – that's, I mean, this one deer, it's, it's still early. I want to compare him to a couple other ones, but uh, there was a lot of nights. So the, the one I'm looking at right now, and we referenced it earlier, you know, this particular deer, he, he would bed in different locations. And this goes back to the thermal hub thing. He might bed in four or five different locations throughout the course of like, let's say November, which for where this buck lives is like early season, uh, not even close to the rut yet. Just eating acorns. He, uh, he might bed in four or five different spots, but he was going to the same spot, and he, he went to the same little stretch of hardwood bottom 24 nights in a row. Every single night for 24 nights, he was there. Um, and sometimes he would go straight down there, and sometimes he would walk up on a hill and loop up into it, and then sometimes uh, he would walk way the heck away and bed way far off during daylight, and then he would have to cross a ridge and come back at night. But even when he went way, way, way far away, a mile away to be exact, he still came back to it every single night. Uh, so, I don't know. I haven't really seen any consistency with him. Now, we're about to figure out the ages of all these deer, and I'm going to compare, like, you know, a couple different age classes um, and try to look at that more in depth. But that's that's one of the things that we're, we're going to be looking at specifically over the next couple of weeks is how he's, like, exiting a bed specifically because that's a really really interesting question that I, I wish i had a better answer for well it's a buck so it's not going to be consistent and, and the older they get the more inconsistent they are and the less daylight so it's it, it's it's flipping a coin on stuff like that so. well um i, I don't want to move on so quickly from the entrance and exit route question um chris because i want mr perry to talk a little bit more about that i'd like to mention using what? headlights too well, yeah, or, yeah. or like headlamps something not headlights headlights bro well, easy, driving, easy. Well, driving, you, hunt, driving you are there. running right next to the road <laughs> Dang, mike's from alabama he hunts <laughs> off the road uh, <laughs> Jeez. that's right. a good that's a good point as far as headlamps i don't like when i'm accessing the rigs and whatever i don't use a headlamp until i'm if I'm coming out, it'll be several hundred yards. I use a little bit of pen light where you just shine it straight on the ground, or, or most of the time I'm leaving it gray light, and I'm I'm not using a light, period. Your eyes get adjusted, and you, you'd be surprised how far you can go without a light. But I'll use a headlamp like on for the first half mile or something where I'm where I'm not in any, any danger of them seeing me or seeing the light. So. Also, just I want to talk about, uh, Mr. Perry, can you explain a little bit more about, again, exit routes? You talked about your entrance. Now, can you talk about exit like kind of, kind of the same track, same same uh, thing, same exact every time. I do not deviate because I, I try to keep it clean. Whether I'm not brushing up against mud, I'm wearing some kind of gloves or whatever, and then we're just going easing, and it's not piling through briars, or whatever. You, you're, if I have to clip through or clip me a trail, I'm doing it. And a lot of times, say a hundred yards before I get to the place or whatever, I rake out places where my feet can get dirt spots, and then uh, where you're walking on dirt, not leaves, not crunching, just sneaking in. 
Do you also do that to minimize your scent trail? Is that why you're doing I do that? not want to, right. I do not want to make a scent trail all over the whole area. I just want to be one way, and I don't, like I say, you don't, you don't cross any kind of hard trails at all. If you do that, you know, you're just, yeah. you're, you're, yeah. you're limited on the time. So, but during so the early. So you will not walk on a trail. You, you purposely no. walk through exactly. the brush. If exactly. I have to cross a trail, you better make sure you know where it's at and step over it. Do not step in it. So, and that's, I'm, I very, very seldom do we do that, so. Because you don't know, I mean, if the deer are coming in for that trail to go back to their bedding area. So if you walk over that trail and you're 100 yards away from where you're setting up, those deer are already on alert. They already know you're in there. Like, they may deviate from their original trail and go a different route. So that's something definitely definitely key to, you know, think about. Now, back to the headlamp thing. I have, I have a different opinion on that. So... I used to I used to go in and out with no head headlamp at all, and it's all fun and, and games till you step on a possum, or 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 a, <laughs> or, or a limb or a limb gets your eye. That's for sure. Oh, um, that's happened quite a few times. But um, that's why I gave you two of them. What I realized is that if you're in there early enough, you can use a headlamp. You can look at the deer, and that deer does not know what's going on. You can actually climb a tree. You can do anything as long as it's at least like an hour before daylight. That deer has no clue what's going on. Like you can you can have that headlamp on him the whole entire time you're climbing up the tree. You can move it around. It does not matter. But if it's anywhere close to where the sun's coming up, you're screwed. Like I'm just going to put it that way. That deer is going to blow out of there so freaking quick. It is not even funny. Like they do not tolerate any kind of headlamp or anything like that when it gets closer to daylight. That's interesting, but, man. So, you go you go talk to like a coon hunter and they'll say like go go ask a coon hunter about how many deer they've walked up on at like one AM and they're like, Man, the deer just stand there. They don't yeah, care. they do. Well, back what, three years ago, uh opening a day of bow season on the WMA that I'm not gonna name. Ah. Um, <laughs> Good I'm proud job. of you, Michael. But I walked Golf in there. Clap. I walked in there um, a, a, an area that uh, I had scouted, we had found a bachelor group of bucks in an open area. Do you know which one? On the hillside. Oh, we okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah All right. Yeah. So I went in there on the backside on that hill. Um, I go in there. I bust up a buck. And so he has no clue what's going on. I'm in there way early, like 4 or 5 a.m., you know, way before daylight. So I'm actually climbing up. I'm looking at the deer as I'm climbing up. He has no clue what I am or anything. He stands there for a solid hour walking back and forth trying to figure out what in the world is going on. He comes all the way up to within 15 yards of the tree after daylight um, because I finally clicked the light off and was just sitting still. But he walks all the way up in this little draw right next to me and finally ends up catching my scent, and that's when he ended up walking away. But... The deer had no clue what was going on. They just did, he he doesn't know. He doesn't know like, hey, that's a headlamp. That means a hunter. Like he just he sees a light, and he does not know what's going on. And a lot of times, I mean, we mentioned it before. Curiosity kills the buck. Like I'm telling you, like that's gonna be my tag. Like curiosity kills curiosity. the buck. That's what's gonna be on your shirt. Yeah, it is. <laughs> like for real, because like th- these deer, like they just they're so curious by nature. Like they. They don't know what's going on. So, like, he saw that headlight. He knew he, he knew something was going on, but he didn't know what I was. And so he, like, loops around back and forth for a solid hour until the sun comes up, 
comes up that little draw right next to my tree. I could have shot him, but I didn't know what he was. Um, but it, you know, totally, totally different before daylight, you know, before, you know, the sun's starting to come up and there's a little bit more light where he can pick out maybe something. I'm not sure how good, you know, their, their vision is before, you know, our vision is, you know, like when we see the sun coming up, I don't know how far ahead of time that is when they can start picking up more light. I'm sure it's a way, way sooner, but I'm telling you like an hour before, you know, you can physically tell like the sun's coming up. You're good. Like in every, in every scenario I've been in, you're good. Yeah. Especially, or even if you're getting it even earlier, um, don't trust it. Don't trust I, they, I, I understand. I've heard in the stories and stuff too, but I'm not trusting it. You know, I've been blown at before by light or whatever hour before daylight. So, so I don't. know. I'm not trusting it. Yeah. So, yeah. be the, the so you the, get a mix on that. I, one. Yeah. Be be safe <laughs> on it. And most people are not going to be going no, in. If you at don't three need the light, why no. use it? Right. Well, if you don't have to have it, but most people are not going in at three o'clock in the morning or three hour before daylight. So you're. You're kind of, you're, they can see better than we can, but it's not as good as everybody thinks in the dark. You know, I've walked up on them in the dark without a flashlight then turned it on. They're down there shot because they they don't see you coming, but that's how they get took out most times at night by a predator. So, but they can't see as good at night like we can in the daylight. They're, they still can't see that good, but, but I'm not risking it. I don't care what they say. I mean, I'm, I'd rather be safe than sorry. And a big old buck, oh, he he's not gonna put up with no dang headlamp, you know. <laughs> he's gonna figure that out quick, you know. So, man, I can't believe that buck ran off. <laughs> yeah, I can shine it right at him. Right. <laughs> I know you stop on a field that's got a big buck in it. Then little ones are standing there looking at that other and some gun. He's getting out of there. Well, I that big care. buck, that big buck's not gonna even let you know that he's there. <laughs> so. Like he's just gonna ease on out of there. He's not even gonna blow. He's not gonna run. Right. Like Both he's just gonna right. slip. Most time that's correct, yeah. But, slip most, out. but they're not they're not gonna hang out for the but watch watch everybody else get shot. They're getting out of there. So. I wanna kinda of go over maybe a couple other questions you have. Um as you can see we can ramble with pretty much anything. <laughs> right. This podcast is supported by Hunting Exchange. In this day and age, we all know it is a struggle to sell hunting equipment on large social media platforms, and that's where Hunting Exchange steps in. Hunting Exchange is an app for iOS and Android built by Sears Hunters that gives you a one-stop shop to buy and sell your hunting gear. Whether you're looking to sell your bow, broadheads, technical apparel, stands or saddles, or anything in between, this secure platform allows you to buy and sell gear with confidence. As a buyer, each dollar you spend is insured by PayPal, and as a seller, there are no hidden charges like other platforms, and listing items is also free. Gone are the days of having listings removed from Facebook and worrying about being banned and removed from groups for wanting to sell something as simple as your bow or knives. So head on over to the App Store or Google Play and experience a new hassle-free way to buy and sell hunting gear by downloading the Hunting Exchange app today. That's great. I mean, that's what I like to listen to. That's where I get the most stuff. I mean, I've already picked up so much stuff. Like uh, the scouting thing I was going to ask is like effective ways to summer scout. And and Andrew kind of answered that walking that creek bottom. That's something I hadn't heard where you walk the, the perimeter of the hub. I think um, my biggest struggle as a new hunter is uh, last year I'd find myself for maybe like three weeks where I would be struggling on, do I sit here in this stand when I don't have confidence in where I'm sitting because I need to be patient so that a deer will come? Or do I need to get down and go learn more on the ground? But then when I would commit to scouting, sometimes I wouldn't find 
anything. I'd be sitting over one puny little scrape in the middle of nowhere just to be somewhere the last hour and a half of light. And it's very difficult to know and, and kind of answer my own question. The night that I killed that buck, I had that feeling, the feeling that he talked about on the podcast today. Like I had that feeling. I, I knew I was in the right spot, but very rarely had I ever felt that. So what's the, what's, you know, how do you be patient or go find more stuff? Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to pitch this to Perry here in a minute, but what I will say is, <laughs> I dealt with that exact same thing because and the first year we started this podcast, I, I, it was 2017 or 2018 or, or some. It was one of those years. I was having a really tough year, and uh, I was I was just struggling to find bucks. I was struggling to get on bucks. Very similar to what you were talking about earlier, where I, I scouted for like weeks and I didn't find any deer to hunt at all. Like I didn't see any deer. I, I couldn't find deer sign. It was just a total struggle fest. And we interviewed Richard Fott, and Richard is like all about confidence. He's like, you got to have confidence. You got to have confidence. And Jacob just like is head over heels, you know, like confidence, bro. You got to have confidence, you know, being all Jacob Myers about it. And he's like, he's like, dude, you just got to have confidence about it. I'm like, dude, I can't just like pull it out of the air. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm not confident. I'm not finding anything. So I've dealt with the exact same thing. And how I eventually got out of that was uh, just not setting up the whole, we say it, and it sounds, you know, kind of cheesy, I guess, but like the hanging hope, hanging hunt, um, I, I got out of that mindset where I was like, you know what, I'm just going to walk until I find something where I get that feeling exactly like what you're talking about, where like I would walk and I'd walk and I'd walk and then I'd find a place where the ground was tore up and there'd be rubs or I'd walk into like a thicket and it would smell like a barnyard or something. And like there was a bunch of hunts where I just walked and uh, never even hung up in a tree or anything like that. And uh, it, it was like aggravating and exhausting. And I felt like I was wasting time until I hit that point where I actually found the stuff I was looking for. And then I started getting on deer a lot more often. And then, and then that's where the patience factor comes in. Because then I started having the opposite problem. And I was like, well, I'm just going to keep scouting and scouting and scouting. And I'd find a good spot and I'd just move right on from it. And I would never put time into it. You know, uh, so it's it's really an experience thing. But uh, Michael Perry, I'm uh, I'm pretty interested to hear your thoughts on all that because you're a lot more experienced than me. <laughs> well, you get ready for about thirty minutes. <laughs> uh, I love. I did, That's a good question. Yeah, if I if I caught you saying correctly, you said your rut starts around Halloween. Yes, sir. And your your season opens September fifteenth. Yes, sir. It's okay. Wait, so you got about a month and a half of pre-season or early season hunting so this could be a long one boys so. <laughs> <laughs> um, what i've learned over the years is you've got to learn your hunting area i'm if you know if you're hunting public land it's pretty much not going to change the you know the area itself so you've got to learn every you pick out your spot so you found out you already killed a decent buck right a, a mature buck i mean i'm just gonna be i'm just curious to Three, I mean, three row, four row. A, yeah, I think it it might have been three. It might have been two. Okay. I mean, it was a decent eight point. Well, I was very proud of it. Yeah, it okay, a, it, well, all right. Well, that's, that's a good starting point. So you found an area where. Then what time of the year was that? That was uh, October fifteenth. Okay. Rain and acorns. Okay, so you're getting close to your, getting close to your pre rut. So. And and one thing that I noticed was uh, I hunted the night before and five does came through and uh, it gave me confidence to go back there the next day and the same right. five does came through and 15 minutes later the buck came through. Right. 
Okay. For as far as the, the confidence thing, you've got to be confident in your area. So you've got to learn your area, learn how you think of travel, all your food sources, especially your crops or, 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 or green fields and such, your suspected mass crops, white oaks, red oaks, and such. Then early season is, is uh, I try to just find a track or a big buck and concentrate on him early season. Then after that, when it starts getting pre-rut, then you're hunting, you're hunting deer. You're not really worried about bucks. You're hunting deer as the groups, the does and such. And then and you're waiting a bit patiently on the big boy to come check. So pinch points, you know, creek crossings and stuff like that is what I'm leaning for then. If, if I've... Now I I'm, I'm, I've lived through what you're talking about, where you just you don't feel it, and then you just get down trunk. If you're, I don't like doing something blind, and and I'm in the fear of messing something up. So, whenever you um, if if you find like good isolated sign, like a lot of rubs and a lot of scrapes, but there's no like really does in the area, and you're in that pre-rut phase, do you stick to the sign or do you go hunt the does in the pre-rut? Pre-rut, mm, uh, you're borderline, but probably I'm, I'm leaning toward the does. I don't. I, I, you can ask these guys. I couldn't carry. I couldn't carry where a bunch of rubs are right now. I don't. I know they're there. I know about where they're going to be, but I do not carry anything about them because most of that is nighttime. You know, and especially on public land, pressured public land. So I'm more worried about how they get to them areas. You know, and and, and try to cut them off getting there. So where the does are hanging out, how they're getting to the does, or how they're going to checking for the does. You know, in the evenings, they're running the, the upper third because the drafts are coming up, so they they can scent check a whole whatever area by running the ridge tops or the upper third to find those hot. So, you know, benches, uh, shelves above creek crossings or I don't know if you have bluffs, bluff gaps in that area, but edges, pine edges, meeting hardwoods and stuff like that. You know, the later on in the season, so you've already had a month and a half of pressure. They're going the the does might move a little bit toward more secure areas or more you know, thicker areas, and then, then, then they're not as visual in the daylight as they would have been. So, and you, then you just make your plan on how you're going to hunt the, the travel corridors and stuff, and then stick with it. But you've got to have that confidence, and and don't screw up your confidence by messing up the, a good place. Is by leaving too much scent. That's why I was talking about the in, entrance and exit. I I minimize my scent. The areas that I find that are that I feel like a and trail cameras, if the more you use trail cameras on travel corridors and stuff like that, you'll get timelines on certain travel areas that you'll where when and where to be. So that might take a year or two, but you already got a pretty good eye on what you want to do. So, but that's that's my main philosophy on it. I do not want to get down and start walking when I'm should be hunting. So to me, once I make my plan up, I'm not I'm not deviating, and I have to plan for my wife too, where we plan together. So we set up two plans and we stick with it. We don't, you know, we don't want to mess up here or walk up on somebody else and mess up their hunt or whatever. So that's my thoughts on it. So now Michael Pat's going to tell you he's a running gunner. He's a he's the diller tiller. Yeah, <laughs> going to till up every leaf, trying to find one standing in. So, so, yeah, but. the only thing I would add is the the WMA that you hunt is a little bit different than a lot of the stuff in the South, especially what they're hunting. Um, and the difference is, is the rut comes in up there a lot earlier than it does in most of the areas that we hunt in Alabama. And so you don't have to go and find the deer necessarily. Um, or I would say this, it's more beneficial to be on the ground, you know, looking at, looking and finding all the sign because you, you've got, 
when bucks come out of velvet, they're rubbing trees. You can find those uh, as soon as like you know the rut comes on or like food sources change or bucks break up. You've got all of those factors, and you've got like at the specific WMA that we hunt, we have months before our rut comes in. So we have a lot of extra time, a, a full month later than you do at your WMA. So it makes more sense for us to go and put more boots on the ground in that WMA versus uh, the one that y'all hunt. The one that y'all hunt, it comes in pretty daggum quick um, from when the season opens because season opens up typically is it is always opened up like October 15th and then the rut is happening pretty much like a month later but the WMA that uh, Andrew and Jacob mostly hunt um, that rut is coming in two months after uh, so you have a little bit more time on your hands before that pre-rut action so uh, whereas Mr. Perry and Kathy what they're doing is they're focusing on like that rut action that pre-rut action and they're able to get to that point really quick compared to a lot of Alabama a lot of Alabama comes in in December and in January. So uh, you would use like a little bit different tactics because you have a lot more time to locate these deer, to find what they're feeding on and, and everything like that before the rut actually comes in. So you don't necessarily have to focus on the does unless you're trying to harvest the doe, which uh, Andrew Maxwell, that, that's his every hunt. Um, I could tell you there's a 200-incher in a pine thicket, and he's going to be like – I'm smacking the, the first nanny he, that walks like, by. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to smack that first doe. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but how does this how does this affect him when he's got a November so, rut? So when you have a November rut, I would, I would stick to more like Mr. Perry's uh, tactic, which is, you know, as soon as you start seeing that sign come up, um, you know that action is right around the corner or it's, it's there basically. And what I would focus on is just like you said, which was the does. Um, you might catch some bucks interacting in a certain area and they're trying to, you know, figure out that pecking order. Um, but if you're not seeing any does in the area, I mean, there's no sense in you even really being there. I mean, if you're at that point of the season already, uh, because the, the bucks are going to be after the does. I mean, that's their number one priority. Um, and so, I mean, just like you said, I mean, for that, for that, for your situation, I would take Mr. Perry's, um, advice and focus more on the does uh, because if you don't have does you don't have anything like when it comes to the rut because that's what the rut's all about it's all about the does so that's your best chance to kill a mature buck and my and my and my tactics you know you got other people that can do it different but from from everything i've done for 30 years or so of hunting that's, that's my best success and that's that's strictly what i'm going by so early season try to pick out a big buck track out, out outside of your main core area basically to, to keep from uh, pressuring it too much and then going into the to the travel corridors and then and, and concentrating on the doe groups then so i mean if you put if you put three or four and my advice is that i, I run trail cameras year round and i don't mess with them much i'll check them say three times a year and and the batteries now last a long time on, on camera mode say two or three shot burst and you can you can get a pretty good idea on and where does are every month of the year, so and it helps you pattern. You know, if if you like technology, you can help you can pattern and, and help you a lot like that. So and even seeing when when bucks are making jaunts and how they're traveling and they're, if they're coming from high to low or low to high or 
or from early morning to evening or however, you can get a lot of patterns and stuff like that. Chris, uh, what other questions or anything else uh, kind of topic-wise that you want to kind of, you know, ask or talk about? Because, again, we're, we're an open book, dude. We want to kind of have whatever the conversation you want to kind of discuss. Well, I know um, you got fired up hearing about the fly fishing and the, and the process of that. And one of the things I learned in fly fishing that I started to notice in hunting was um, when I was fly fishing, I kind of developed this technique of power fishing, which a lot of people, when they fly fish, they're creeping around the flats and they're being super careful looking for that fish. But uh, I would just commit to fishing super aggressive and like being okay blowing out the first couple fish and then slowing way down and getting in the zone and that's kind of what I tried to apply to hunting and that's what got me to scout to find the sign for that deer so that was just one observation when it came to the fly fishing thing and relating it to archery um I have a few off the wall questions that I mean they're kind of like take experience to let's answer. Go back for one of the biggest questions I have. Let's go back. Let's go back. Second. You're, you know, the, a lot of the old school guys, that's what they've done. They, mm-hmm. they hunted until they, till they found a deer and jumped them up. Right. And they might move in another 50 yards, whatever. But that was a good tactic. And, they, and that, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. You're, you've got a good strategy doing that. Yeah. I would say uh, a lot of people are, are not very aggressive at all. And they're, I hunted with a guy for years, uh, a friend of mine. And, um, he was he was always so cautious about bumping deer. I don't want to bump a deer. I don't want to bump a deer. And I'm a I was okay with bumping a deer, especially if I'm going to be hunting this area for multiple years because I think you're you're you learn more about what the deer's doing uh, by bumping them out of an area. If you can bump a bear, uh, bump a deer out of an area, then you at least learn something. Whereas if you're sitting back, uh, you're not learning anything, especially if you don't see a deer. So if you can go in and be more aggressive initially, then you can figure out where the deer is at, what time of year. You can think about why he's there. You can learn so much from that, and then you can apply it for the following years. You may not necessarily capitalize on it in that specific hunt, but the amount of knowledge that you gather from that for future is, I mean, it, it, it's great. Yeah. I don't know what else to say. I'm out of words. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> yeah. But you're, 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 when you do that, if you're finding bucks now, you're finding their core area because right now, I mean, that's where they live. So they might move a little bit, half mile or so when they when they drop their velvet. So, but you, if you find bucks now, you're finding a core area and you're getting good starting points. So, topo maps and stuff, it might help you a little bit to hone in more. But, I mean, you're 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 doing it, you're doing it, you're doing it right, and then you know you're going you're going to accomplish great things, buddy. I really believe that. Well, thank you. I uh, I hear you guys talk about targeting mature bucks a lot, and I want to focus on learning how to target mature bucks. And I found, you know, a, a good few nice eight points. How do I find that big ten point? That's I want to find the big boy, like the one that everybody wants. You know what I mean? And I know it ain't hanging right off the road in the access, like you guys say, because if anybody saw that deer his entire life, they're gonna dedicate all the time they have to finding that deer. First, is my is my opinion and thought process. How do you find the the big boy? Well, this is my first, Pike's department. First of all, no, I won't say that. But I, <laughs> I do I do have an opinion on it. First of all, you got to hunt where they're actually at, because a lot of places don't hold those big deer, and I've learned that from hunting a lot of different places. And there's only like a couple of areas in Alabama where you have a a really high chance of killing just a wall hanger, like one like you're talking about. And you've got to go to those places, and they, they may not necessarily be close to where you live, 
but you've got to go there because if you're hunting the same areas just hoping for like a, an outlier you know you're going to be let down nine times out of ten but so what i would suggest is first of all find out where those big bucks are coming from you know where are your state records at you know things like that um because when i first got on uh, the hunting beast years ago uh, they were talking about like you know if you want to kill the big buck pass all pass basically on all the smaller bucks you know so i was passing on smaller bucks and i was actually getting bigger bucks coming through especially like during the rut later in the day so like i would see all of these younger bucks like between like eight nine o'clock in the morning and then i would see a little bit bugger up a little bit buck like around that, that tequila just hit them boys yeah <laughs> that's four ounces of tequila right there um <laughs> so i would get that bigger buck like around 10 30 or so and then i would pass on that one and then i would see the biggest one usually like coming through like around 11 11 30 in the morning and that was always a scenario that I, that would play out but what i didn't realize is the type of buck that i was actually trying to kill they weren't there period because they just the the land that i was hunting would not i guess hold the type of deer that i was chasing which was what the mid the midwest guys were actually killing which was the you know the huge wall hangers that you see so you've you've got to have like uh an idea about what is actually what what are you actually able to kill in the area what is a really good buck and what is a great buck and you really got to focus on those areas you guys inspire me with so many questions i got so many yeah here questions. we go here we go all right so <laughs> no no michael is spot on with this you can't kill it's if you're trying to kill a 140 inch deer if the biggest deer that you've ever seen come off a property is 125 inches, the likelihood you're going to find a 140 is slim to none. Now, if you're just trying to find a big mature buck, like a big mature buck, dude, if that buck's 120 inches or 115 inches, but he's six years old, he's getting shot every single time, you know, if he comes by me. So my thing is like, what is your goal? Are you, are you looking for inches or are you looking just for a mature deer? Because you can kill mature well, deer anywhere. I mean, honestly, I don't, I think maybe I've seen one buck that was bigger or that was older than three years. And it was a big nine point last year in that hut in the rut. So I know that there's at least the potential for that deer, but that was dumb luck. It came after like a, a really nice, maybe two or three year old eight point came. And I've, I've seen quite a few nice two or three year old eight points. You know what I mean? So if, if they're only two or three years old and they're nice eight points, what does that look like as a five-year-old? How do you find well, the five-year-old? Well, can I ask you a quick question? What uh, what are you basing off, I guess, how are you discerning, like, whether or not it's a two, three, or five, or nine-year-old, like, buck? Is it because of how big the antlers are, or is it because of, like, you've had them aged, or, like, what does that look like? That is a, a really uneducated opinion of myself. Uh, I did grow up hunting in Texas, so I saw some some bucks, you know, killed, and uh, and they just don't look gnarly. You know, I've seen two like older looking deer, you know, big body deer that were substantially bigger than the nice eights that I'm talking about. So you're in South Carolina. That's the first thing I'm gonna say. Um, if, <laughs> if you're in Texas or if you're you know in the Midwest somewhere, these deer might look totally different um, as far as like body size. As far as antler size, um, you have to look at like your general area. So if you can find like a WMA, you know, in your area that posts pictures, or if you can find like a, 
you know, yeah. somebody on private land that posts pictures of big deer that they've killed. Or like, a biologist. Talk to a biologist. Yeah, talk to a biologist. Um, that's the number one thing you can do because our deer down here, you know, it may be a five-year-old deer and it's, you know, 120 inches. inches. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. But if you go up to the Midwest, that deer may be 175 yeah. inches. I mean, you never know. Like, so yeah. it would be very good for you to find out what the deer look like in your area, you know, like something that's been aged, like by either a biologist at a WMA or somebody who's got a private lease, like where it's, you know, managed by, you know, some type of biologist who ages them. It would be a really good idea to get a really good grasp on what the potential is for your specific area. Because you, that, you had that changes sorry. so much across the board. Yeah, that's correct. You got to know about what your deer's potential is in that area, then 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 set you a goal of what you want to shoot, then decide from there. So, like like what he was talking about, Mike Pike there, the dealer that uh like one area that we hunt, you know, we're looking for a bigger deer, say place, say a three. I'm I, mine and my wife's goal is pretty much a three and a half year old buck or bigger. So it's not really a trophy buck, but that's our goal for for what we're hunting in the public land. So at Black Warrior, that could be say a uh, a 130 plus you know or it might be a 120 but you go to to another management every hunt say what we call it oak mogey manager they uh i killed a six-year-old this this year that was he might be i think it was 115 eight point you know and that was you know it's a good deer it's not a monster but it's a decent deer but you got to kind of know the potential of the area then then set up your own goal what you're going to be happy with you know if you're looking for a monster or whatever then you might have to pass up some deer that to get to that point that but that's your decision and what makes you happy you set that goal and don't worry about what anybody else says then you go for it yeah what i will say is make sure that you know your potential because when i showed my dad the picture and video of that buck that i passed up he's like why in the world would you pass that deer up he's like that's like the biggest deer on the property probably like but like i was comparing to other states and thinking these are big deer and we didn't have that potential where I was hunting. So, like, that was, like, a really mature deer. And, you know, I, I let it go because I wanted something bigger. But there wasn't anything bigger. So, you really have to know you, you really have to know that knowledge. That's true. Even here in Alabama, a 120-inch deer is, is a lot bigger than people think. That's a heck of a dang deer, you know. So, and it might be for South Carolina. I don't really know. Oh, how big a buck genetics y'all got, but uh, I'm, I'm sure 120 is going to be, you know, very respectable. So, I mean, that, like I say, but, you know, eight point, you know, eight point is, is what a deer is supposed to be. You know, ten, you know, nine, ten points, that's bonuses right there. So, good eight points, there's nothing wrong with it. So. Yeah, and Chris, um, both, you know, Perry and, and the Dilla over here um, hit on this, but, again, it's all about the potential. One thing that might be worth looking into is that the property that you're hunting on, if it is, again, like if you talk to, like, the field biologist, if, if, whether it's National Forest, Wildlife Management Area, Refuge, wherever you're hunting at, if you talk to, like, the local biologist, their field manager for the property, and he's like, if you're just like, look, if you have trail cam photos and you're showing them trail cam photos, and he's like, oh, that's a really good deer, or that's, oh, that's, a, that's an okay deer, he, should, he or she should be able to tell you exactly potential. And the thing is, if your goal is a bigger deer, Look at around there. Be willing to drive. I mean, that's the biggest factor. I talked to Michael about this uh, last year. Is like, if we want to kill a 130, 140 inch deer, 
you got to hunt a place that there's a, a little bit higher deer density for that age class buck. That's going to be a five or six year old deer that's going to have that kind of possible age on them to grow that big. And there's only a few areas that I know that we can go to and hunt that, not even in Alabama, but even other states. When we go out of state, you know, we're going to try to find some place that maybe they don't have the highest deer numbers, but they have a really good age structure of mature bucks. And there's a potential to shoot that 130, that 140, or even maybe get an outlier that's, you know, even bigger than that. So that, that's a huge factor. And hey, we've interviewed uh, a gentleman, oh my, uh, McGee, what's his name? Eric McGee. Eric McGee. From South Carolina. He killed a giant dude over there on some public land. I think it was like a 160 something. Um, but he told me, he's like, dude, it was an outlier. He's like, dude, most of the deer on that property that he's killing, 125 inches, is a fantastic buck. He's like, he was just <laughs> the biggest buck he had seen on the property and he lucked into it, found where he was at, knew where he was bedding and feeding and went in there and killed him after a couple hunts. So, well, I did, not really lucked into it, but he found where he was at and went and killed him. So, you just got to be honest with yourself and the potential of what you have out there. That that leads into another question I have. I've, I've always been a big dreamer and I have looked at the records for South Carolina and like kind of where they come from and the counties and stuff. How does a new hunter go into um, networking and finding a good hunting club? Because like looking on Facebook doesn't seem to cut it really for finding a that's, that's strictly going to be word of mouth, and your best hunting clubs and your best big buck hunting clubs is very, very quiet. They are very, they don't, they, and it's hard to get in the ones with the big deer, so you, you're going to have to do that by word of mouth and then do a lot of talking. It's not going to be published, you know, or on Facebook or anything like that. we got several clubs that kill some monster bucks, and you don't even see it. If you post a picture, you're out of the club, so that's that's going to be that's going to be tough, buddy. So. Yeah, word of mouth. Does uh does your job allow you to move to the Midwest somewhere? <laughs> I think I just need to find Jacob's Tennessee spot, right? Oh, oh, that's oh it. you yes. keep hyping it. Yeah. That's for it. Me. I'll give you uh, I'll give you the coordinates after the episode. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious! That's where I get my 150 incher, huh? That's oh, it. that's right. That's right. That's right. Oh, that's he's look so at red him. Right he, now. Doesn't, he doesn't even have anything to say. Where he keeps on the DL. Guys. Oh, he's so red. He looks <laughs> like a tomato. <laughs> oh man. Hey, you gotta make sure you're watching the video podcast, guys, yeah, so you can see, see these reactions in person. <laughs> oh man, Chris, you, that cut that, that cut deep, man. Well, I mean, really, the only reason that I wanted to come on the podcast was so I could see your guys' lips when you bleep out where you're going. On. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Oh, oh man, that's why we put Michael in the corner where you can't see him. <laughs> Uh, oh, he yeah. hasn't said Bankhead the whole episode. <laughs> oh, Good luck with Bankhead. That's all yeah, I got to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can come on down and hunt Bankhead. So yeah, we'll, we'll tell welcome. you exactly where we're hunting so. on Bankhead. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Chris, uh, what other questions? You said you had some off-the-wall questions or topics. Um, you know, what particular ones do you have that, you, that would be kind of interesting to discuss? Um, well, one of the things was um, was the hunt club question. I know that's... Uh, you know, not an easy question to answer. The other one was finding a trophy deer on public land, which is not an, another question easy to answer. Uh, one of the other things that I struggled with last year that I really had trouble with was getting good technical advice when it came to shooting my bow. So field points, 20 yards, no problem in the backyard, shooting beautiful groups. Then putting on the broadheads and trying to step it out to 30 yards, 33 yards. And, and I just pictured the buck of my dreams being at 34 yards and not having the confidence in my broadheads. And just really like, I mean, I look on YouTube and try to figure out why my broadheads are flying so much different than my field points. And then, you know, if you go to a local archery shop, 
I mean, they really want to sell you a bow, but they're not trying to sit down and give you lessons or, or break it all down for you. And it just, it felt really overwhelming as a new hunter to try to figure that out. Wow. Are you shooting uh, fixed blades? Yeah, I'm shooting fixed blades because, uh, like I said, I have some buddies who hunt a good bit, and uh, and they they're all about maximizing their opportunity. And if if, if their con- their theories are if a deer comes in at a weird angle, you got a lot better chance with a fixed blade than a mechanical blade. And I I know the mechanical blades would fly more accurately, so I was trying to stick with the fixed blades, and and just figure it out. But yeah, that's one of the things I struggle with. I know there's no easy answer to that question either. There's a lot of a lot of tuning yeah. videos out there, like you've. What what you could go down a a black two or, th- hole. Two or three hour podcast yeah. just on it was just basic tuning. The, the biggest thing is I would personally try to find someone that can mentor you that has a lot of experience tuning archery. There's tuning bows. Um, they don't actually have to work at a bow shop. Um, you know whether you're in any kind of organizations, groups, anybody like that you can network with that truly has a good understanding of how to properly tune a bow, and then. Just, just come or just talk to him. Be like, hey, listen, I, I need somebody to show me how to do this, and can you please like just walk me through how I can go about making this all shoot correctly? What's up? One thing we could do, I'm sure we have a ton of listeners that are experts at you know tuning bows. Um, if you had some kind of way to reach you, they can probably reach out to you and and actually you know help guide you in the right direction. Probably, yeah. And the biggest thing, Chris, definitely is going to be try to find somebody locally too that can like sit down with you. And you can go whether they're paper tuning, bear shaft tuning, everything, and just and just kind of walk you through the process and kind of teach you, so you can kind of learn yourself, but also so they can help you properly tune and get your bow set up. Because the problem is, I've ran into this uh, in some shops um, where you go to, you might go to a bow shop, and the bow tech has a very basic understanding of just the mechanics of archery equipment and getting everything tuned, and you might leave thinking like, oh, they tuned the bow, but they really didn't. But then you go to some archery shops and you have someone that's been working, you know, with archery equipment for 15, 20 plus years. And it's a totally different situation because they understand not only, um, but you're hearing a lot more people's kind of uh, questions come about like, you know, FOC, which we're not going to get into any of those discussions now, but like they have a better understanding of, okay, what are you trying to shoot? What do you, what's your setup going to be like? And let's get this thing properly tuned. So when you leave here, you can have full confidence. When you go back to your range of the house, you can shoot and, and have the confidence in your setup. And that just takes knowing the right people. That's all it is. I've got a question. Mr. Perry, what kind of broadhead do you shoot? Well, I was going to talk to him a little bit about that. The, um, Spitfire Max. Spitfire Max, what I'm shooting right now is mechanical. and uh, But the you said some hunters was telling you or some buddies that you want to be able to shoot a fixed blade where you can take a questionable angle or something. Is that correct? Well, I mean, just like if a big buck comes in and you all, the only shot presented to you is a quartering two, or maybe, um, you know, you're not pinpoint accurate and maybe you would have a better chance with a fixed blade than a mechanical blade. Well, I'm, cutting I'm, through I'm, some, just, I'm just going to go out and say that you don't have any better chance with fixed or mechanical. If you're, I mean, on a questionable shot right. either way so uh, my big thing is the more damage you can do you know you're the better off and then and if you're having concerns about accuracy field point versus you know your broadheads with the speed of bows today from what i've learned so i've, I've been shooting a bow from back when uh they just barely had compounds my dad's i think i put a video today my dad's first compound but to uh to keep the um, to keep the accuracy with the fast bows nowadays they had to make the your fixed blades pretty much smaller smaller cut so they can be tuned easier and uh 
so you're not going to get as much damage. Sure, you'll get more penetration on a questionable shot, but a questionable shot is a questionable shot. So with a mechanical, you can get pretty much pinpoint accuracy matching your field points. Then another thing I learned about shooting fixed blades, I tried to shoot fixed blades. I was going to go on a moose hunt, and I was practicing with fixed blades. And if I touched my face any kind of weird way, it always would make that fix go where you did not want it to go but with a mechanical it would correct itself before it got there and was, was pretty accurate so i'm leaning toward more on the on the mechanical if, if it was me but the, today's stuff that they've got now is just way better than the old stuff so you got some people that's going back trying to go shooting these big heavy front and center you know try to shoot through the shoulder and all that but it you're you're even if you make a gut shot with a if you make a gut shot with a butter knife versus a versus an axe or a uh, or uh, something that's got four blades on it, you know, which one is going to bleed more? You know, you know, a bigger hole is going to bleed more than a little slice with a with a little you know single blade. Um, what they call them, the single bevel or whatever they're all getting into now. That's but that they don't make a big hole. They don't. They're not going to bleed much. A gut will stop that hole up so fast. So where you got a three blade mechanical or something that cuts real big when it does open, your your better chance of a blood trail. Even if you got to get a dog, the better chance for the dog. So I'm all about more damage. The better off you are. You want to try to you owe it to the animal you're hunting to to try to take care of it fast. So yeah, I, I'd like to say something about this point because I went to a heavier arrow setup, um, and I went. Above and beyond, I think I was like 600 and something grains uh, up front or total air weight. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Sorry. Yeah. Hey, no, good. Not up front. Uh, but anyways, <laughs> um, it was a, a three-blade. Three it was fixed. Val- um, Valkyrie? Valkyrie, yep. Um, I shot a doe, questionable shot, and I thought it was actually good, but I didn't have – it didn't hit the doe just right. And me and Andrew tracked that doe for probably an hour and a half for two hours, maybe even. And Andrew thought there's this, this doe is not dead. And I was like, well, you know, I don't want to think that the doe is just not dead. You know, I want to, I'll get a dog out here, even if it's a doe and I got a dog out there. The dog found it within the first five or 10 minutes we were tracking. Um, and so I would have left there thinking that doe was still alive or, you know, just hurt really bad, you know, and maybe died later or something. But that doe was only 100 yards from where we last, you know, found blood. Um, it did some zigzagging around, and we just lost blood. And I, I didn't I didn't like that. Um, you know, I, I thought I had my, my bow tuned, you know, just right. But I don't know. I just – didn't have a good feeling about it, so I went to a a Schwacker. Uh, I'd heard, heard a lot of good things about it, and um, to this day, I've killed every single deer um, within 100 yards. Uh, that deer didn't make it 100 yards past where I shot it, and that was even with a questionable shot. Like, Well, I say questionable, but I'm going to tell you the story. So I was on the ground stalking through a pine thicket, and I heard what sounded like a deer to me. And I waited there for about five or 10 minutes and I could hear this deer right next to me, like 15 yards is what it sounded like it was away from me. And I never could find it. Well, then all of a sudden 
I'm, I'm looking low. Like it, the sound like it, it is coming from below where I'm standing. Uh, there was a little draw, a little creek that was between me and another little ridge side. And all of a sudden I spot the deer moving and it's actually at my eye level, but it's, it's about 20, 25 yards away. And I draw back. And as soon as I draw back, the deer looks at me and it's a, what, what I thought at the time was a, a really nice eight point. And later on, I found out he only had basically one side and the other was just like a main beam. But like, so the side that I was looking at was four points on that one side. So when he turned to look at me, I, I was drawn back. I just drew back. And as soon as I touched it off, since he had saw me, he pivoted. He, he dug his front hooves in and turned. When he turned, his head turned back into his vitals, where the, his vitals were. By the time my arrow hit, it went straight through his face. All right. No, keep going, keep going. So, anyways, the deer didn't make it 100 yards. He was dead. It was like pouring out buckets of blood everywhere. Um, but that was a schwacker. That was a mechanical um, a mechanical broadhead, and I had a lighted knock and everything. I, I could not find uh, where the arrow went. We still don't know to this day. We we skinned it out and tried to find out what what actually killed the deer because the deer did not make it far at all. No, oh, I think he did. He, so he had a hole. It's a video podcast right now, so y'all can kind of see me right now. The arrow, the broadhead went in just below the eye, like on the nose, and the hole just went straight back. And we thought it went like down his neck or something, and like the arrow was inside of him. I think it went back and hit one of the carotid arteries on the side of his head, like on the side of his neck. And then the arrow pulled out somehow, and you just it got flung somewhere you didn't see it. And I mean, he bled like nothing I've ever seen before. Now, yeah. now if you would have had a fixed blade, you could, probably could have done the same thing. I don't know. Yeah, but it was interesting. Yeah, I don't know. But I'm just saying, like, don't, don't, you know, our deer, especially here in the south and the southeast, especially where you're at, they're not very big deer in general. I don't think we're going to run into quite as many problems as some of these maybe larger Midwest deer for one. Um, but I've not had one issue with not recovering a deer since I went to that Schweiker. And you can look at like uh, David Blanton. You know who David Blanton, the real tree uh, hunter is? David Blanton. I've heard the name, but well, no, I don't know. I'm he's sorry. old school. Yeah, we, he's been with we, real tree from way back. But he's been shooting a Spitfire forever, and even out west and stuff. So, I mean, it's just you, you got to get you got to get your confidence built up, and you, you decide what you want and. Uh, there's nothing wrong with mechanicals. I, I'm that's just what I lean toward. My wife shoots Spitfire, like what he was talking about. Yeah, well, not a Spitfire, but the and that's made swagger, by NAP, so. right? NAP. So Spitfires. NAP also had one. What was it called? Oh, um, the uh, kill zone. Kill zone. Yeah. So yeah. I, I same thing. Kill I killed a doe with a kill zone, mm-hmm. yeah. and that deer. It was like you were pouring out buckets of blood all uh, the way to where the deer died. That was like, yeah. Um, yeah, I remember. Yeah. That's, I remember a, that's that a good one. broadhead. Yeah. It's similar to a swacker, but right. it don't have the bands. But it, yeah, they cut a big, you know, two blade big, like I hit him with an axe or a hatchet. So yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, the last thing I'll say on this is, uh, I, I'm kind of, I'm a little bit on the other side of the spectrum. I like a fixed blade. Um, now, full disclosure, I haven't shot a mechanical um, ever. Well, I've I, I've carried them. I've never killed a deer with one. So, but the reason that I that I shoot what I shoot, I shoot a Simmons Swamp Shark, big wide uh, two blade, 
175 grain. And the reason I shoot that setup is just I hunt in such thick areas it carries through brush better. Uh, plus, it's a pretty big cut for a fixed blade. But I was able to get that to tune. Um, and I used to work <clears> in a bow shop, so I kind of knew what I was getting getting into. And it was still a little bit difficult for me. Uh, so kind of like what these guys said, trying to network with some people and find someone who could kind of show you what they're doing. Um, there's a lot of really good videos on YouTube. You've probably already maybe watched some of them. Like uh, Ranch Ferry put out a lot of really, really, really detailed um, tuning videos that are great. Just make sure you have like a full weekend to do it because it's going to take some time. Um, but if you can't, like if you either can't figure it out or you don't have the time to figure it out, then I would shoot a mechanical, which I, yeah. like I said, I'm not really a huge mechanical fan for like a couple of reasons, but I mean, if that's what's going to be accurate at the end of the day, like you got to shoot what's going to hit. And if you don't have time to like, if you're wanting to shoot that, that big fixed blade setup or whatever, and you don't have the time to make it work, then don't shoot it. Cause you'll be better off with a mechanical if that's, what's going to be accurate for you. And just understanding your limitations with the setup, just like, cause I mean, I shot, yep. I, I always hunted with mechanicals up until a couple of years ago and killed deer with them. And it was fine. And I had some negative experiences where like I had a, I know one, particular shot shot at a doe she was 22 yards away from me and she was on full alert and that's another thing you got to realize when you're shooting with a bow i don't care how fast your bow is if she's on if a deer if a deer's on full alert you you, you better know what you're doing when, when it comes to where you need to put that arrow at because hit the dirt. I, I had it right horizontal on her body right behind the shoulder shot and she ducked six inches i hit the top of her shoulder to scapula and that uh kill zone nap kill zone didn't go a quarter inch into her uh, shoulder blade and it fell out when she ran off there was no blood i mean there was no blood even on the arrow i mean the broadhead didn't even deploy because it didn't get make it to the blades and it's just but the thing is when i hit them mid-body right behind the shoulder i mean dude they were dead so quick because you had such a large hole that was going into them and i always had pass-throughs too and shooting like a 410 grain arrow but the thing is you got to know what you're doing when it comes to shooting like like some of the old timers, if you're shooting a mechanical, they're they're like, don't hold the, don't hug it on the shoulder. Like what you hear with ranch ferry, we're coming wrap the leg and you're putting around the pocket. You put it off, <laughs> you know, three inches behind that. Um, and again, some people might be hearing, Oh man, he's telling them wrong. But it's just the way we grew up hunting. Dude, when I grew up, when I came to bow hunting, how my uncles got me to bow hunt, they're like, dude, if you can put at, at 20 yards, if you can put three arrows inside of a pizza pie or like a pie, uh, pie plate, plate yeah. then we're good to go hunting. And that's how we got going. <laughs> so I know that a lot of people, oh, man, that's not ethical. That's yeah. that's, that's what fun. you grew up doing. That's, that's what we grew up doing. So And we killed deer doing that. But the thing is you have to be realistic to what you're shooting, what your goals are, and understand if you're going to be shooting a big fixed blade or just a heavy setup, you're going to have a lot more time fine-tuning everything then with mechanicals. And if someone wants a little bit of both, there's broadheads out there that, again, have a fixed blade and a, and a, a larger mechanical on as well, like Bipolar with old Tim Knight yeah. uh, broadheads. And there's a bunch of other companies as well. Just find something that you like, find something you shoot, and understand your own limitations on what you're shooting and just hunt with it. Right. I mean, if you're hunting with an ex uh, expandable, I'm not taking a quartering shot. I'm not going to try yeah. to hug the shoulder. I'm not going to try to put it on the shoulder because it's probably not going to yeah. end well, at least with my old setup, what I was used to be shooting. Now, if you trust your equipment and and pretty proficient with it, I've took a quarter and two shot with a, with a spit fire on a three-year-old eight-point and shot down beside its neck in the front of the shoulder and got all the way to its heart. So it didn't make it 50 yards. I've shot a back bear that weighed 300 pounds straight through the front shoulder. It busted through the front shoulder and, and hit the opposite shoulder. But when you're talking shoulder shooting on an animal – the center of the shoulder and down on the deer, you'll bust through that. There's no, there's no bone there, hardly anything. Now that upper part of the scapula, I don't care if you hit it with a hatchet. That's, that's not, 
a kill zone, kill area anyway. So mm-hmm. you're up above the, it in the back strip. The center and below, with a 415 grain error of whatever, you can you can bust through that. Or at least the first shoulder anyway. You see it all the time. You watch. I, th- I think the stuff. first thing with my first year, I just didn't realize that there would be a big difference in field points and broadheads, and I didn't realize how early you need to start to prepare. And I, I mean, I'm committed to to getting on target this year and being very confident in my setup. It's just, I didn't know that you had to start that early and there would be, I didn't even know there'd be a difference between field points and broadheads until it got really close to season. Oh it dude, it's like, a tar- It's a total wormhole. I mean, you can go in with like, you know, different, different, uh, grain heads, different spined arrows, how you grip your bow can affect it. I mean, oh, yeah. like you can, you Torque, can go face, yeah, you can go paper tune your bow and be throwing like a weird tear and your bow could be perfect and it can be your grip that's messed up. So there, there's, there's a lot of stuff that has to be considered with it, and it just, it, it takes time to figure it out. Well, I mean, there's really no way around well, it. <laughs> I remember when we first started shooting with muzzies and stuff. When you shot field points, shooting tournaments and stuff, whenever you got shoot ready to shoot broadheads, you switched to your broadheads, and that's what you shot practicing everything because they were going to be different than your field points. You just adjusted your sights to get to your broadheads in you know, <laughs> them days. So. Yeah. But, well, well, Chris, to kind of wrap us up, we're kind of running low on battery. I'm looking at the cameras right now. Uh, do you got any final, like, little quick question or anything we can hit on real quick or any final thoughts? Uh, I mean, you know, we talked about a week ago, and I thought about questions all week. And uh, I realized that the more I thought about them and listened just to stuff over the the week, I, I learned a lot of those questions just thinking about it. You know what I mean? And uh, I know a lot of it comes down to experience. And you guys' Q&A was, was awesome today. I crossed off like 10 questions. So I don't have any more questions. And I appreciate you guys uh, taking the time to answer my questions. And I appreciate you guys doing the podcast. It's helped me a lot. Wow. Dude, we appreciate you listening. And we appreciate you hopping on here and taking your time to uh, let us ramble about right. <laughs> all your deer hunting questions. Yep. Right. And uh, But like to say, uh, as Michael walks back through here across the cameras as we wrap this up, <laughs> get on over here. Just no, ruining no, the camera. Yeah. Angles, come, man. come on, Mike. Jeez. Um, but Amateur hour. Chris, what I'd like to do is uh, is get back in touch with you a little bit later on, maybe at the end of the season, and kind of do a recap of, you know, from this conversation and everything else that you've learned and what you learned from last season, how you were able to apply some of the stuff for this season and see how it works and see, again, what kind of mistakes were made and let's kind of talk through that at the end of the season. I think it would be a really fun conversation. But, again, man, appreciate you coming on. Thanks again. And everybody that's watching now, I hope you all have enjoyed this podcast. If you have, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and uh, leave us uh, some comments below of uh, other topics you'd like to see in the future. And also maybe even questions for Chris as well. Maybe he can read some of the, the comments and uh, maybe answer some of y'all's questions. But, Chris, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Dude, absolutely enjoyed the conversation. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, we really enjoyed it. And, uh, like you say, you can, uh, you can look me up on Facebook, whatever, too, Michael Perry. And, uh, hey, I appreciate your service and good talking to you, sir. Yeah, Thank good you, luck sir. with this season. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman. And thank you to Blackberry Smoke for the music for the podcast. Also, to follow along with us, make sure you check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Until next time, y'all stay Southern.
You guys seem to really have enjoyed over the last year where we've went to a Q&A format every Thursday on the show where we answer some listener questions. Now, some of the most common ones that we get have to do with gear, but also how to find a good hunting buddy. You know, I'm really lucky to, to have a hunting buddy like Jacob. We've been on a lot of incredible hunting trips together over the years, and it's just nice to have somebody that, you know, is always down to go on that that trip that you've always wanted to go on or, or who'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go get that gate before someone else does on public land with you, whatever the case may be. And like I said, we get a lot of questions on how do you find, you know, a group of people who enjoy that same thing so you can kind of network and make some connections. The Mobile Hunters Expo is the place to do that. Y'all heard us talk about it last year. And guess what? This year it's happening in Dalton, Georgia. We're going to be there June 28th through the 30th. We're going to be there all three days. We're going to have a booth. You can come talk to us. We talked to a lot of you guys last year, had a ton of fun. So looking forward to that again. But guys, I'm telling you, this is the place to come network. And there's going to be a ton of you guys there. A lot of Southern Outdoorsman podcast listeners are going to be at this show. And actually, Friday, June 28th, there's going to be an after-hour social after the expo. So what better place to go kind of intermingle, hang out with a bunch of like-minded people, and probably pick up a couple new hunting buddies. So you guys don't miss it. It's June 28th through the 30th. I'm telling you, if you listen to this podcast, this is an event you need to be at. Now, we'll see you guys at the Mobile Hunters Expo June 28th through the 30th in Dalton, Georgia.